Well, please join me now in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're in this section of the Bible where we're talking a lot about suffering. And understood, this isn't a, a section of Scripture where we would say this is a feel-good topic when we talk about suffering. But aren't you glad with me that our God has not been silent on the topic of suffering? That the Bible's not an irrelevant book full of nice, naive, idealistic sayings disconnected from the realities of life. On the contrary, God has told us very clearly that we should trust in him. Even in faithless times, we should be men and women of strong faith in Christ. But sometimes people get this message wrong. In fact, one time I saw a church sign that had a message that was completely divorced from reality. The church sign said this, everyone's life is a fairy tale written by the finger of God. And you drive by that and you go, nope, <laughs> this life is not a fairy tale. The only way in which we would say that might be possibly true is we do have a never ending, happy ending because of Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, lots of struggle, lots of suffering, even in this life. And don't you love with me that the Bible is so honest about that. And first Peter's just been full of examples of that. Now, two questions come to mind on our way to our text this morning is this. Why is there suffering on the earth? And then the second question is, why do I suffer? So the first question is, why, do I, why is there even suffering on the earth? And we know the biblical answer to that is back in the book of Genesis. The reason there's sin, the reason there's pain and all this on the earth is because the original man and woman, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. And as God had warned them, if they do that, they would surely die. And the earth then came under a curse. And you and I have been born in that condition outside of the perfections of the garden. And, and so we understand this is, this is what's happening on the earth. There's disease and there's dysfunction and violence on the earth, all beginning with that original sin. But then the question we have more immediately when we struggle is, but why am I, why am I suffering? And that answer is really varied, isn't it? We know we can suffer for various reasons. First of all, sometimes our suffering comes from the bad actions of other people. And you've had that experience. I'm sad now. I'm hurting now because somebody has acted on me in a way that was, was cruel. Sometimes our suffering is due to our own bad actions. You ever been there? Where you think it was my own foolishness that is causing this pain in my life. I brought this on myself. But Peter's been reminding us that there's some other suffering we're going to have in life. Not because of our bad actions, but because of our good actions. Using the language of Peter here, we may suffer for doing evil, but we may suffer for doing good. Do you remember last time, 1 Peter 3, 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And now this brings us to the idea that suffering indeed can be God's will for us. And we have to let that truth sink into our minds. This understanding of the sovereignty of God, that nothing's going to come into our life that God does not direct or permit. So there's nothing random happening to you. They're like, I don't, God couldn't have even stopped that. God didn't know that was coming. God wouldn't have let that happen. No, God is. He is sovereign over all these things. And so what's happening in your life is, is God is allowing that. So you can, let's say it this way, you can suffer right in the center of God's will. And we've been seeing that. You can suffer for righteousness sake. You can suffer for doing good. And God's very pleased with you. And yet he's allowing suffering in your life. And we talked about that last time. That God promises to bless you in the times he allows you to suffer. 
How blessed? You remember last time? Well, God's accomplishing things through our suffering. We see that also in James chapter 1. Also, we know that God can draw us into greater growth and intimacy with him through our suffering. And also this, that God promises when we suffer for him in a hostile world, that we are blessed. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, great is your reward in heaven when you are persecuted for his namesake. So with all that, let's now move into today's text, 1 Peter 3, picking up in verse 18 and following. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. As we continue this talk about suffering, I want us to understand together that the greatest example of suffering for righteousness is Jesus. The greatest example of suffering for good, for righteousness, is Jesus himself. Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Peter has already told us back in chapter 2, verse 21, that Jesus is our great example. Remember this? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Here it is. Leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. But here just in chapter 3, verse 18, we have so much going on in this verse. Let's meditate on this a moment. Here we're told that Christ has entered into our suffering. This is amazing grace. This is why the Messiah came to the earth. This was the plan all along for Christ to leave the perfections of heaven where he had no suffering, to come to the earth on purpose that he might suffer and enter into that with us. So when you are feeling suffering in your life, maybe you're tempted to think, well, this is unfair. Why is God being so cruel to me that he's letting me suffer? You ever been there where you're asking them why, the why me question? In those moments when I'm tempted to ask, why me? It's, it's better to correct that thinking with another question. Why not me? I mean, think about it. In the Bible, it's a who's who in the Bible who suffered. It's everybody you can think about in the Bible. Moses suffered. David suffered. The prophet Jeremiah suffered. Daniel suffered. Paul suffered. Peter, who's writing these words, he suffered greatly in his life. And then ultimately, Jesus suffered. So the question shouldn't be, it's going to come, but you can't stay there. Why me? This is so unfair. When you see the ultimate example of suffering for good is your Savior himself. Now, there's comfort in that, that Jesus came to suffer in an experience that you can relate to. In other words, Jesus is not indifferent to the sufferings you and I have. He does understand. Jesus suffered far more than any of us. And so Christ, he's entered into our suffering. But notice this, not only did he come to suffer, but he suffered for a reason. He suffered for sins. Specifically, he suffered for our sins. Now, this is an important truth to know. And I don't know your church background, but if you've come out of maybe a liberal church background, you heard very little of the fact that Christ died for your sins. I know about this because when my parents divorced, I had a weekend with my mother that was in a church where they taught 
the scriptures and proclaim the gospel. But my weekends with my dad, before he later found a better church, those were weekends in a church that we would call theologically liberal. And they never talked about the death of Christ there. They never talked about sin. They never talked about redemption. Because in a liberal church, they've moved away from the idea of an atonement. They feel like you don't really need atonement. Basically, Jesus just came to be a moral example for you. So I think back to my weekends with my dad at that church. And here's the message I got week in and week out at that church. I heard, be nice, share. I applied to myself, share your toys, you know, help a neighbor. And it was just always that. So they would say, we're, we're teaching you what Jesus taught, but strangely silent on the death of Christ. But here's the scripture telling us, no, this is central. The cross is central. Look at it again. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Couldn't be more clear. The cross is essential. First Peter 2, 24, he already taught us this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen, by his wounds, you have been healed. So here, the death of Jesus for us, a necessity for us. We needed somebody other than ourselves to rescue us. We could not possibly lift ourselves up out of sin by trying to be nice. Oh, Jesus came and suffered. He suffered for our sin. And did, did you notice these words? Christ was the righteous one who suffered for the unrighteous. So we're just talking about Jesus being the ultimate example of suffering for righteousness sake. This is so helpful to us because when we suffer for Jesus's name in our day, at least we know Jesus is worthy of it. Don't you have that sensation? Have you ever played that out in your mind that what if I were to suffer great, more greatly than I presently do for the name of Jesus? Maybe I'm called into my boss's office. Maybe I'm called for before some authority at some point and, and they're upset and there's going to be punishment for me following Jesus. If you play that out in your head, at least you would know in that moment, whatever difficulty they're about to give to you for the name of Christ, at least you know this, Jesus is worthy. I'm suffering for the righteous one. How could I do anything less? And I know this is going to be temporary because heaven is to come. He's worthy. But think about with me. Jesus did the opposite. He came, the righteous one, to suffer for whom? For the unrighteous, for the ones who are not worthy. So he came on a rescue mission for us, wanted to do this in order to save us. And we're told the goal of it. The goal is our reconciliation to God, to bring us to God, the scripture said. This is a reminder that all of us formally alienated from God because of our sin. But Jesus came, suffered for us on the cross, taking the penalty for our sins. So that if we believe in him, we're now reconciled to God. He has brought us to the father. And I love this, not just to have simply peace with him, but to be adopted into his family. And at such a high price to himself, first Timothy two, five and six, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. We're just talking about Christ being our example. How about this? Christ suffered not just suffered, but to the point of physical death. Peter says here in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh. And Peter's talked about this already in 1 Peter 1.18. Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus came to suffer 
to suffer and die, to pour out his blood. And it draws our minds back to those Old Testament animal sacrifices that find their fulfillment in Jesus' death on the cross. We recognize what Jesus was doing in his death because we look back to what God had communicated through all those animals, those, those spotless animals giving their blood to make temporary atonement in a sense. But the fulfillment is in Christ. We recognize what he was doing for us. But unlike those Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus only suffered once. For Christ also suffered once for sins, we're told. And of course, Jesus was raised from the dead. He was made alive, we're told. So much packed into this one verse. It is the gospel message just there condensed down in 1 Peter 3.18. We find other one verse expressions of the gospel in places like Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We're healed. Or Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And of course, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the savior and he saved us by suffering for us. He is the ultimate example of suffering for righteousness to make us righteous. So come to Jesus today. If you've never trusted him before looking at him as an example for suffering, first recognize he suffered to save you. And the only reasonable response to someone who loved you like that, turn from whoever else you're following and follow this one. Put all of your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who loved you like no one's ever loved you. Look to Jesus for salvation. And then yes, look to Jesus as an inspiration for suffering, for doing good. He is worthy. So we have Jesus the ultimate example of suffering for righteousness sake. And now a lesser one here Peter teaches us about, but still very helpful for us. And this is Noah. The example of Noah who suffered as a righteous man on the earth. Let's go back into verse 18 and then continue reading through verse 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went. And proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. That is a very interesting text right there. And so we have some interpretive questions that have to be answered here. First of all, who are these spirits that are described in prison here? And when did Jesus in the spirit preach to them? As you can imagine, through the centuries, different scholars have looked at these verses and said, well, here, here's what we think and our best understanding is. So some have said in the past that, that this was likely Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, the, the souls of those who were in Noah's day, but he preached to them between the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's what happened during that time. Others say, well, it's not the souls of those men, but it's the angels who were disobedient those days. And between the crucifixion and the res resurrection, this preaching happened, a message of condemnation to them. But more likely, this is a reference to the spirit of Christ, as Peter describes the spirit in chapter 1, verse 11. The spirit of Christ was with and in Noah as Noah preached to the rebellious people in Noah's lifetime. So these are the spirits or the souls now in prison. But they weren't in prison at the time that, that Noah was preaching as Christ was preaching through him. And this is very helpful to us, and it fits the context here. 
Because here we see that Noah then is another example for us of faithfulness in faithless times. Now, how, how would Noah be helpful to us as we consider suffering for Christ? Well, first of all, I want you to consider with me Noah's isolation and Noah's ministry. So right now, you might feel alone where you work or where you go to school or among your friends because you're the only Christian you know in that place. I mean, a lot of people call themselves Christian, but you might be the only serious disciple where you are and you feel very isolated. And helpful for you to know, Noah has been there. But consider Noah. There were no other righteous people on the earth. So it's just him. And that was even the grace of God, that God would consider him righteous, that God would work so favorably and graciously in his life to call him to himself, that he could stand alone. And, and of course, with his wife and his sons and their wives. But talk about isolation. Noah had no youth group. Noah had no, no ministry. He had no local church. It was just his family of all the people on the earth at the time, everybody else wicked and running from God. Consider that isolation. It is encouraging for us. There was Noah and God communicated to Noah, I'm going to destroy this sinful, wicked earth. You must build an ark. But we also know that not only was he building an ark, but he was preaching to the people around him as he built. How do we know that? Well, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 refers to Noah as a preacher or a herald of righteousness. And so he's building the ark, as he's told. You know people are asking him, why are you building this massive vessel when there's no water near here? Why are you doing this? And there's the message. Judgment is coming. And there is a way of salvation. You need to repent and believe. You need to put your faith in this good God who's giving this warning. I like how one writer described that. Listen to this. He says, according to 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, it was Jesus himself who, in the spirit, preached to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. We take this to mean that when Noah preached righteousness, he did so by the power of Christ, by the spirit of Christ. That is, it was the message of Christ delivered in the power of Christ that Noah proclaimed. The ungodly men of Noah's day had a chance to repent and to be saved as Christ preached to them spiritually through Noah. Unfortunately, they rebelled against the truth, refused the ark, and drowned in the flood. In addition to Noah's proclamations to the unbelieving world of his day was the wordless preaching. In the very construction of the ark, Noah bore witness to righteousness. Every hammer blow, every pounding of a nail was a call to repentance and a declaration that judgment was coming. Those are powerful words. I think that's very helpful. Think about it. He's explaining why the ark. Judgment is coming. And I love that word. That, that every hammer blow, as the echo would reverberate around, why is he doing it? He's saying there's judgment coming. He was preaching and proclaiming even in the building of the ark. But isn't it sad that even with all that preaching, in the many years it took to build the ark, only eight were saved. Only Noah, his wife, his sons, and his daughters-in-law. After all that preaching, listen, Noah is a great example. When you feel like I'm standing alone, there are no, none who believe, nobody's walking with me, Noah should be a great encouragement to you. In fact, consider the alternative. What if Noah got tired of being alone as a righteous man on the earth and thought to himself, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of the ridicule and the reviling for God. Nobody's coming along. This seems pointless. I think I'm just going to kind of join the others. I want to join the majority in what they're doing. 
They look like they're having fun. I mean, when they're not killing each other in the violence of this wicked world, they look like they're having fun at least some of the time. Maybe I'll just switch sides and, and just go be with them. It's got to be easier. How tragic had he done so? How foolish had he done so? We get to see this. And likewise, in your circumstances, I know that temptation. I think, I, I think it'd be easier just to cave, just to compromise, just to go along, to get along. Don't do it. Look at Noah, a great example of suffering even for righteousness. And by the way, we have the same spirit of Christ living in us that Noah had in those days. And we have the same message that Noah had in his day. That ark, that ark represents Christ. It's another foreshadowing of Christ. And so we know I need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus, the ark. And I get to present that message. There is a judgment coming, but God in great mercy has provided a way of salvation from the judgment it is to come. Turn from sin, trust in Jesus. He would save you. And so we have this great message of Jesus being the ultimate example of suffering for righteousness. And helpfully, we have Noah as an example of suffering for righteousness in a faithful way. But then we have a couple other things that we have to notice in our text here. One of them is the role of baptism. Here, Peter segues from the waters of the flood to the waters of baptism. And there's a teaching here we need to look at. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pause there a minute. We've got to explain that verse. Does it mean here that baptism is what makes you right with God? Is that where you find your salvation in baptism? Well, if you were to grab this verse and take it out of its context and out of all the biblical context, you'd say, yeah, it sure looks like he's saying that if I want to be saved, it is the water that's going to do that. But we know that's not the case because when we have the gospel proclaimed throughout the scriptures, baptism is sometimes mentioned, but usually not mentioned. So places like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, listen to this, baptism's absent here. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Or Romans 10, 13 says this, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Or John three sixteen, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And most famously, you have the thief on the cross. You remember he's dying on the cross. He hasn't been baptized. He hasn't had a chance to do anything good at all. He just says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's faith. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, no baptism. So then what is Peter talking about here when he says that baptism saves you? Well, for Peter, it's so automatic. Of course, when you trust in Jesus, a part of that is going to, you're going to be baptized. What Christian is not going to want to follow in baptism? Because baptism in those days and in our day is a declaration of faith in Jesus. Baptism is an, is an important symbolic expression of your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so who, who would not do that? That's why when you read in the, in the Gospels and you read in the book of Acts, when the apostles are preaching, they will say, repent and be baptized. Of course, you're going to do that. By the way, there's also another indicator here that immersion is in view. Going underwater is the proper mode of baptism. Here he speaks of baptism, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So the whole idea that somebody might think about the removal of dirt from a body would mean they're not thinking about sprinkling. Nobody say, I think that's going to take the dirt off your body. It's the immersion that would give that picture of cleansing. And Peter says, listen, it's not about cleansing the external. 
It's about a good conscience that you're going to get when you come to Jesus and have your guilt removed by trusting in Christ. In fact, Peter here makes it very clear. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you notice it? But we do want to say this, that baptism is important. It is a step of obedience. And if you're here today and you've trusted Jesus, but you've not yet followed in baptism, what are you waiting for? You should most certainly tell us, like, I, I want to be baptized. I want to, I want to declare my faith in Jesus and show that my faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is an important testimony that you have to share with others. And then one other point here that we have to observe, and it's wonderful, it's this, that suffering is followed by exaltation. So Peter takes us now back from Noah back to Jesus, the ultimate example, and we learn this, that suffering is followed by exaltation. Notice verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's huge, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. It's the same teaching that Paul gave us in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're looking at Jesus. And this should inspire our confidence when we suffer. So who is walking with me through my present sufferings? Oh, it's Jesus. Yes, who suffered, but the suffering is ended now. He ascended to heaven. He's exalted. And notice how Peter just pours it out. Every other thing has been put in subjection to Jesus. Oh, he humbled himself. Oh, he suffered like no one else. But he is now exalted above all else, over all angels, over all authorities, over all powers. So you should be confident in Christ when you're called upon in the will of God to suffer for him. And you can be confident like Jesus that your suffering for him will be temporary. And soon enough, your, your suffering will give way to what we could call exaltation. So temporarily, currently suffering for him, but eternally triumphing with him. Have we not been promised in the scriptures that the meek, the gentle will inherit the earth? And it's true, we will with the new earth. Haven't we been told in the scriptures repeatedly, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And so in Christ, though we suffer for him gladly, willingly because he's worthy. Oh, but it's temporary. Glorification is coming for us who know Jesus Christ. So today, let me appeal to you to humble yourself and put your faith in Jesus Christ. To enter the ark, who is Jesus, to flee from the judgment to come, to come to the one who gave his blood on the cross, to atone for your sins and was raised from the dead. Trust in him. And then confidently follow him, beginning, yes, with baptism, but follow him no matter what may be required of you in a hostile age. And look to Jesus. Look to Jesus with great hope and expectancy because glory is coming. Exaltation is coming. Oh, that you would know Jesus and trust in Jesus and proclaim this Jesus as Noah did in his day. Let's pray together.